Good morning. The, uh, the message today is um, a significant one for me and that I think in a lot of ways this is sort of my life message. That's my theory is that everybody has a life message. It's certainly true about people in ministry. I think it's true about people in scripture. I think it's true about anybody's life, even whether or not you're in vocational ministry, that we all have something. Um, this feels like sort of a big theme for me, but I don't feel like I've ever preached it quite from this place or from this perspective. And I don't know, just feels special today somehow for some reason. Pray with me if you would, and then we'll go right to the text. Uh, God, I just feel especially aware today of just how much this truth in particular transcends rational thought. Not so much that it's irrational, but that it's transrational. And just how much today, Lord, that uh, we long for the kind of moment where it's not about information being dispensed, but the kind of truth that transforms us to the very core of, of who we are. So I pray in the words of the Apostle Paul that you would give us a spirit of revelation. Pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to be able to behold things, to be able to see and to hear things that can only be made possible if your spirit awakens us to the truth of your word, if your spirit calls us to life through this proclamation. We ask for that and we submit ourselves to the authority of your word in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I know you just got settled, but stand with me one more time, if you would, for our reading from the Gospels, We're Luke chapter 3, following the lectionary once again to um, a text that, again, is, I think, such an incredibly powerful one. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Moving to verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You may be seated. I'm convinced that this moment, when the Spirit of God splits the heavens open, descends on Jesus as a dove... And the father speaks these words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm convinced this is the hinge point of Jesus's entire life and ministry, that literally everything about who Jesus is and what he is to become hinges on these words, that the weight of his entire destiny is in this phrase, and therefore the weight of our destiny is in this phrase, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I think this is the moment where after years and years of obscurity that the father publicly proclaims, publicly speaks into the identity of Jesus. For me, the timing of this is just so critical because the father speaks this word of delight in Jesus. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased before Jesus gets it right. This is before his test in the wilderness 
when Satan will tempt him for 40 days and 40 nights. This is before he passes the test. This is before he's opening up blinded eyes. This is before he's healing lepers. This is before he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. This is before he's obedient to the place of crucifixion. Before Jesus passed any test, before Jesus gets any of that right already, God speaks into his identity. And I am convinced that this is literally the most critical point of Jesus' life. Because from this moment, Jesus is so fully convinced of what his father says about him that he will live every moment of his life from this place of identity. We know, of course, a few verses later that the same spirit who descends on Jesus here will then also drive Jesus into the wilderness. As it goes in Scripture, the wilderness is not a place of punishment. The prophets would go there. People of God would go there in order to receive revelation. The wilderness, for however lousy it might feel, is a place of clarity and discernment. It is the place where we're most able to distinguish between the voice of God and the voice of the accuser. The same spirit that descends on Jesus when the father proclaims that Jesus is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased will then drive him out in the wilderness. And I'm convinced that even the reason for that is that these words that the father has spoken over Jesus now need to be sealed into his, almost into his DNA. That these words need to settle over Jesus. That the wilderness for Jesus, and I believe this is true for us, is the place where in obscurity we learn how to discern the voice of God. We learn who we really are. It's the love and mercy of God that he doesn't send Jesus straight into the crowds, right? There needs to be this wilderness time first because this is how Jesus is going to develop the tools, the resources within himself to be able to resist that whole push and pull so that when the crowd begins to celebrate him and says, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's not going to be too elated from that. But when they turn on him and say, crucify him, crucify him, it's not going to change what the Father has said about him either. The wilderness is the place where this is going to be deeply, deeply internalized for Jesus. These are the words, again, that I think are going to shape Jesus forever. And for me, what's so crucial about that is that when the enemy does come to tempt him in the wilderness, there, and there's great preaching to be done on each of these temptations, right? I mean, they're all kind of distinct in their way, and yet there's a way that they're fundamentally the same. Each temptation begins with this phrase, if you are the Son of God, if you are who God says you are. If you are who you say that you are, then you will do blah, blah, blah. Command these stones to be made bread. Then you will throw yourself off this temple and the angels will catch you. If you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, bow down and worship me and I will hand over to you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus recognizes the deception of the enemy from the first word, if. Because what happened just before he was sent into the wilderness is that God told him concretely, absolutely, once and for all, who he was. Jesus has already been told by God. So the very moment that he hears these words, if you are the son of God, then prove it to me, which I'm convinced, by the way, is the heart of any and all kind of temptation. If you are who you say you are, then prove it somehow. Sin always is an attempt to try to prove ourselves to somebody else, to try to prove ourselves. And, and it, doesn't this bear out in so many ways? I feel like so many of us are attempting to prove things to people who aren't even living anymore. We're trying to prove things to people who are departed. We're trying to prove things to parents. We're trying to prove things to others. From the moment that we first develop any kind of intuition at all, we get a sense of what's going to please the people around us. And we're convinced that if we do the right things, if we say the right things, then people will approve of us and they'll be pleased and everything's okay, right? Everything comes out of this sense of striving. If you are, then prove it to me. Jesus is completely unique, though, in that he's completely convinced 
of who God says he is. Is that making sense so far? We know that like, is, is it making sense? Okay, just want to make sure. So this for me, like this again, this is kind of the, the central revelation of my life and it's coming to life for me right now in whole different ways, right? Jesus, we know, to put it mildly, is unique from us. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that you are different from Jesus. There are some fairly critical ways that we are not like Jesus, right? We are not like Jesus in that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We are not like Jesus in that Jesus is the only one who is ever sinless and perfect. But I think what often gets lost in the shuffle is the ways that we are more like Jesus than we might think. And that starts with this. We are, you are, beloved by God the Father in precisely the same way that Jesus is. That is not a different love. That is not a different kind of love. I don't believe in any of this terrible business that God loves Jesus, but you're a despicable, ugly worm, and God can't even look at you, and the only way he can look at you is if you're hiding behind Jesus or hiding behind the cross. Take all that theology and burn it down. It comes from the devil. How you like that? Damnable doctrine of demons, I say. God loves you with the same love with which he loves Jesus. There is no distinction in it whatsoever. So while, yes, okay, so we're loved by God in the same way that Jesus is. We're the beneficiaries. We're partakers of the same love that the Father has for Jesus, that the Father has for the Spirit, that the Son has for the Father, that the Spirit has for the Father. We're partakers of that same triune love. But the biggest difference, I think, between us and Jesus, and I know there are a lot, but I think the biggest difference is this. Jesus never forgot who he was. We forget who we are all the time. One of my favorite quotes is where Henri Nouwen said that one of the great tragedies of human life is that we're always forgetting who we are. We are constantly forgetting what Jesus always remembered, that he is the beloved son of God in whom his father is well pleased. We always forget that. Jesus lived every moment of his life completely convinced that he was God's beloved. Note again that this word, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, does not have anything to do with the good works of Jesus or whether or not Jesus is going to pass the test that's coming. It comes before that for a reason. Because what the Father says to be true about Jesus is not contingent even on the perfect behavior of his son. Are you grasping this at all right now? Even though he's the perfect sinless one, God does not delight in Jesus because he's perfect and sinless. God delights in Jesus because Jesus exists, which is the same way God delights in anyone, because you exist. It doesn't have anything to do with what you've got wrong or what you've got right. It doesn't have anything to do with your performance at all. Because you are, because you are created in the image of God, God loves you entirely, completely, sees everything, knows everything, and yet loves you with an everlasting love. That is a word that God speaks over you, beloved son, beloved daughter, that predates anything you get wrong or anything you get right. It is at the ground floor of reality. It is the ground floor of who you are, is who God says you are. What God says about you is more true than what anybody else says about you. Man, I'm just feeling this in my bones right now, and I'm not sure if you're grasping this yet. Here's just a little tangent for you. I feel like where we go wrong with a lot of our theologies, a lot of people's theology starts with Genesis 3 with the fall. My theology doesn't start with Genesis 3. My theology starts with Genesis 1. <laughs> before there is sin, before there is the introduction of this profound human brokenness, God creates us in his image, and he says that this is good. 
Richard Rohr uses this great phrase of original blessing. Do you believe in original sin? There's nothing but especially original about sin. I believe in original blessing, which comes before sin. Sin is, as strange as this might sound to us, sin is actually not native to us. It's not. This is sin is not intrinsic to who we are, to who we're, what we would become. The blessing of God precedes the first sin. Our theology has to start with the creation and the goodness of God, not with the fall of Genesis 3. No wonder a lot of theology lands in a very different ditch if you start at the wrong place, Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1. But this proclamation of God, beloved son, beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, this sets up everything else. This, I really believe, is the entire key to a life of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you can't take me seriously if next week I tell you that something is the entire key to a life of God in Christ Jesus. But if you hear me preach a thousand times, this is what I'm going to come back to over and over again. I think that in the same way that this proclamation of Jesus' belovedness, in the same way that's the hinge point for his life and ministry, it's the hinge point for ours. It is the only hinge point. Whether or not we can fully and deeply grasp a revelation of God's love makes more of a difference than anything else ever will in determining who we are and what kinds of people we're going to become. It shapes everything. I laughed at myself in the last service because I found myself speaking in such rabid overgeneralizations, which sometimes I just think is fun to do, especially when I really believe in the overgeneralizations. So as overgeneralized as it might sound, here, here is what I'm saying, and I really believe this, right? Every decision that anyone ever makes that is unhealthy comes out of a place of fear, comes out of a place of doubting somewhere fundamentally what God says to be true about them. On some level, there is a continuum between fear and love. First John teaches that perfect love casts out fear. I think the converse is also true, that fear has a way of driving out love. We can't live from love and fear at the same time. Every unhealthy decision we ever make is based out of some kind of fear, some fear that God will not be enough for us, some fear that we are not enough. Some fear that somehow there's not provision out there for us. Every bad decision, every unhealthy decision always comes out of a place of fear. So, so much is shaped on whether or not we're going to live from a place of fear or whether we're going to live a place from the knowledge of God's love, from the knowledge of our belovedness. That makes all the difference in the world. And you can't, you can't live from that place. You can't be convinced of this if you don't understand that God loves you precisely as you are in this moment perfectly. Nothing you can do to somehow pare that back. Nothing you can do to lessen that. God cannot love you any more than he does in this moment. And he cannot love you any less than he does right now. If you don't really believe that, then you can't grasp the truth of your belovedness. And this truth, I'm convinced once again, is absolutely everything. I know whenever anybody talks like this, and certainly when I talk like this, there's a certain kind of pushback sometimes because people like want it to be clear, right? That you, but yet God doesn't want you to do naughty things and all of that. And yet I'm so convinced of this, right? I, I really believe that, you know, if any of us are going to be damned, it's not going to be because of naughty things. It will be because we don't grasp the knowledge of our belovedness. That's the truth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But if we resist that knowledge, oh, this again, this is the hinge point for everything. This is precisely why Jesus is always so hard on the scribes and Pharisees and tells them outrageous things like, you are sons of hell who create sons of hell who are double sons of hell, double the sons of hell that you are. They're even worse off after they get to you. Why? Because fear-based religion is so toxic. 
It gets in every part of us. It plays on that already deep suspicion that we have that we're only, uh, we're only lovable, that we're only acceptable to the extent that we present ourselves as something that's lovely, right? And so when that kind of thing gets, gets kind of down into the roots of us, when that gets into our bones, it becomes nearly impossible to uproot. I mean, it has to be like... This is why, for me, this message is so significant. It's not like, so we know some really good things about God and Jesus, and now I just want you to know God really loves you, and make some minor tweaks in your life based on knowing that you're beloved sons and beloved daughters of God. It is much more radical than that. The fact is, most of us have been schooled in the religion of fear, and that is an engine that has to be replaced. It is long it is painful, and that, which is why I think all this is just sounds so deceitfully simple, right? Hey, you're beloved sons and daughters of God. He delights in you. Man, that sounds so great. Fact of the matter is, it takes an entire life to come to really believe this. Because unlike Jesus, we're always forgetting. We have to be renewed in this reality over and over again. We have to be reminded over and over again. That's a lot of what happens when we gather in a setting like this is we're being reminded of who God says that we are. We're reminding one another. That, and we need that so desperately because this for us, it's a lifelong journey to come to really believe that we are beloved by God in exactly the same way that the Father says that we are. That making sense at all? But, but the, here's the thing, though. But even if it can't be perfectly grasped, it can be grasped somewhat. I can grasp it more now than I did yesterday. There is, then the more I believe that we begin to grow incrementally in knowing how beloved we are by God, that's what really gives us the strength to live in a way that's free. That's, where the, that's, that's what gives us the strength to really make the kinds of choices that are holy and that are good and that are for health and well-being. It's when we come to believe that what God has already said about us, beloved son, beloved daughter, that has to come first, right? So it doesn't become like after you start becoming a wholesome enough person and you start just climbing the ladder of holiness and goodness somehow, then you can believe that you're beloved. Again, that's not how it works. You have to first believe that right here, right now, in your most broken place, that you are completely loved by God that you are totally beloved. That is the only way that anything is ever gonna be really transformed about us is if we come to believe this on a cellular level. Like our bodies have to be, I mean, everything in us has to be renewed in order to see this this way. I wanted to go to one other text from the Old Testament from uh, the Psalms. One of the things I love and find so fascinating about David is I think that David grasped his belovedness better than anyone else does in the Old Testament. So it's still not like Jesus, not perfectly, but I think he glimpses it in a way that no one else really does. And I just, when I first felt like the Lord was dealing with me about these things, and I could feel that it was revolutionary. I could feel that like God wanted to uproot and replant and all this tremendous shifting in me was during a season in my life where I had been doing a long-term study of David, which I love the character of David, but I specifically got in this thing of reading a lot about David and Saul. And I always have this like long angsty relationship with all the stuff about David and Saul. Because you know David, right? He's the one who's called a man after God's own heart. And no matter what he does, he's Mr. Man after God's own heart. Unlike Saul, the bad, tall one, who's head and shoulders over everyone else and somehow uniquely evil, right? So I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about this whole Saul deal. Because when I read about Saul, like, I never, like, what makes Saul any worse than David, Right? Do you ever do this or think about that in any kind of scripture parallel for that matter? Jacob and Esau. Do you like Jacob more than you like Esau? Like what's so awesome about Jacob? 
like, like punk mama's boy, you just kind of want to slap him. There is nothing more likable about Jacob than Esau. These things never make sense. Like when I look at David and Saul, you know, David, again, David has just as much misbehavior as Saul ever has, right? At the grand, like he's not somehow less disobedient, I don't think. And yet they land in such different places. This is never stated explicitly in the text. But the more I studied this really prayerfully, I really did feel like the Lord gave me some insight into this. Because one of the first things that we learn about Saul is that Saul, from the time he first comes on the scene, is always the people's choice. He's the people's champion. And the sense that we get of Saul is that his whole life is so contingent on the kind of feedback he gets from the crowd. So that... The moment that sends Saul over the edge, I always think it's a little bit comical, even though it's sad. The thing that makes him lose his mind is when the women sing. Note that when the women sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. That's where he loses his mind because he's used to being celebrated and affirmed by the crowd. Saul's identity comes from an external source. From that constantly moving, constantly floating, transitioning kind of approval and affirmation that comes from the people around him. How how people respond to Saul determines what he believes to be true about himself. David, on the other hand, instead of from an early age being formed and shaped by the approval or lack thereof from the crowd, spends years in obscurity. He spends years in wilderness. And it's while he's in this wilderness place, just simply taking care of his sheep, nobody out there but God and these lambs, that David begins to grasp something of how beloved he is. I'm convinced that's the ultimate difference between David and Saul. Not that God loved David in a way that he did not love Saul, but Saul was incapable of grasping his belovedness. And whether or not we grasp our belovedness will make all the difference in the world in the kinds of people that we become. Psalm 139. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend in heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light to you, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance, and your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. Can you hear the way here that David is punch drunk on the love of God? He is intoxicated with God's love. He gets it. 
at least for moments of his life. The love that hems him in behind and before. The love that was perfect for him before he was knitted together in his mother's womb. That unchanging love so that David knows, even if I make my bed in hell, you will be there. If I fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, you will still be there. There is nowhere I can go to escape your love. There is no way I can go to escape your presence. David is so ahead of his time here because he's grasping, at least for moments, just how deeply and desperately he really is beloved by God, just how far down that goes. For moments, he's able to grasp this. And I think for David, that changes everything. What does it mean? I mean, I think it takes, again, all of our lives to grasp, but to come to a place where you really do believe that in him, you live and move and have your being. So it is not that there is this presence out there who, when you do it right, hovers over you with delight and joy and cheer and then goes away when you do something wrong. That hovering delight is with you all the time. I don't have kids biologically, so I know I don't understand this as well as some of you do, but parents help me understand this all the time. The kind of unconditional delight that you take in your kids, the way that you always delight to see them coming, no matter what kind of shape they're in, that, 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 just, that meter doesn't move at all. I have to believe that that's how God loves us, but on an infinitely larger scale because the love of God is so much deeper and richer and greater. See, that, that, did you hear that even David's words? It's not just that he's delighting in God. He's delighting in the fact that God delights in him. That's a, a radical idea, right? That God delights in you, that God has innumerable thoughts of kindness and affection and tenderness towards you, which sounds like really narcissistic and egotistical, but here's the really odd thing about it. It's actually people who really believe that God is obsessively in love with them that live in the least egotistical manner. <laughs> like this is what will make you the un-narcissist, is when you really know that God desperately loves you this way, that's what gives you the security to not have to look for that love elsewhere. Because now you're not looking for a love external out there that's already in here that's been in there since before you were knitted together in your mother's womb. That love that predates your existence. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? That love that does not move, that doesn't go anywhere, no matter what you do. So you make your bed in hell. God will be there. That does it, that's not a way of advising you to make your bed in hell. But I will tell you this. I would rather you make your bed in hell and come to know how loved you are by God than never know. That's the worst thing is to not know. Man, I just... I just think it's so like the Lord. Of course, he wants to spare his kids the hardship of having to learn things the hard way. And yet at the same time, and I believe that's what happens to David later in his life, he comes to grasp this in a very different way on the other side of failure. Um, today in particular, and I will try to close with this, is a real complicated morning for me because um, today is the day. Uh, I, pl I planted a church in Charlotte 10 years ago today, basically. 10-year anniversary of the church. Called, it's called Renovatus, Latin for renovation, church for people under renovation. And I feel like so much of my life has been bound up there and with those people. Um, just the, the, even this journey of coming into some sense of my belovedness, I feel like so much of that season of my life has shaped who I am. And today's such a bittersweet day in some regards because I so love Tulsa, I so love sanctuary, and yet there's kind of this place in my heart sometimes that still feels a little bit like I misplaced my old life, you know, that's 10-year anniversary and I'm not there, I'm here. You know, there's so much of that that, uh, you know, kind of identity that will always be bound up in that place in some ways. And yet, you know, for as much as I really thought 
that in a lot of ways, I think I thought I would be there forever, and that's always what I was going to do. And there was such a sense of, this is what's always going to happen. There is this way now that um, on the other side of that, through so many twists and turns, through so many moments that have felt so harrowing, and so many moments where I felt like I'd made my bed in hell, it's like, I would not trade anything for the knowledge that I have right now, the knowledge that is in my bones at this point of how beloved I am. I wouldn't trade anything for that. But there was a long season where I really wondered if I, like, I'd ever come to peace with that. You know, this sense that, well, that's the life I was supposed to live. That's where I'm supposed to be. I had an experience a couple weeks ago. It was very uh, transformative for me in the way that this person's presence always is where after Christmas I went with my parents to go see Sister Margaret Gaines. I know a lot of you heard me tell stories about Sister Gaines I'm sorry, I know I talk about her all the time, but she is that person who really most embodies the presence of God for me. Uh, she's 84 now. She, uh, for many years, was a missionary to the Palestinians, just a really extraordinary person. But now that she's retired in Pell City, it's just, she's just the coolest person, y'all. I mean, like, uh, true story, like, this happens on a regular basis. People will literally knock on her door. They will be driving by and will feel something weird driving past, past the house. Knock on the door and ask her, can you please tell me what it is that I feel when I drive past here? I mean, like, and if that sounds spooky and charismatic, apologies, but I believe in it. I mean, I'm telling you, when I walk through the door of her house, it feels like walking through a portal to heaven. Uh, she always wants to downplay her own, like, sainthood or whatever, but I do believe that just, you know, when people are uniquely surrendered to God, they do. There's just the living out of the abundance of God's presence. It's just on her. And when I went to see her a couple weeks ago, it was the first time that I saw her to, to see her post-divorce for me, is the bottom line. Post-divorce, post-being gone from Renovatus, and feeling so like, oh God, I just don't know what this is going to feel like. Because I think like in my head, intellectually, I knew that she would look at me the same way, but I don't know, I, I don't know that my heart was entirely convinced of that. The same part of me that's still suspicious of God, quite frankly. Never will forget when the Holy Spirit said that to me very clearly. Jonathan, it grieves me that you're still so suspicious of me. I never will forget God saying that. And I know that I am. And so I think deep down I had this sense that maybe seeing Margaret on the other side of the biggest relational failure of my life and feeling like a failure in general, that somehow that was going to feel different. I hadn't seen her about a year. And man, let me tell you, it was so spectacular just to kind of, she has this way of like holding my hands and looking in my eyes. I feel like she's looking into my soul and to feel as much, if not more than ever, to feel so completely loved, to feel so completely accepted, to feel so completely at home. It was just the most brilliant experience. And it really somehow for me just kind of brought all this full circle. Because I think before when I talked about belovedness, it was largely a theoretical idea for me. Because I've always been more the elder son than the prodigal. And I think the elder son always has the deep suspicion that if God does do anything good for you, it's because, well, at least you've tried hard, right? Like, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I do my best. So, of course, God's going to be good to me. To be at this place in my life and to be fully aware of the depth of my failure and yet to never have a grasp in my life like I do in this moment of how beloved I am by God, I would not trade that for anything. So even where there's a kind of grief over some of that, it's, it's so different now because I so believe that the ground floor of reality for me is how deeply loved by God I really am. Again, I'm trying to land the plane. I just want you, I wish somehow there was a way I could impart that to you so that that knowledge of your belovedness really is at the ground floor of your identity, that you believe that to be more deeply true about yourself than anything else that anyone says about you. And how about this, I think equally important, that it's more true than anything you say about yourself. 
more true than anything you see in the mirror. I love when 1 John says that, that even if our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. There is a proclamation of our identity that comes from God. It's just more true than anything you can say about yourself or that anybody else can say about you. Whatever labels have been assigned, what God says about you at the end of the day is the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that's real. Your failures do not define you. Your sin does not define you. Your missteps do not define you. Just because something is what you did does not mean it's who you are. Who God says you are, what God says you are, is the only thing that matters. And the only word God has for you, it's all can be summed up in one word, beloved, beloved, perfectly beloved, right here, right now, precisely as you are. In your best moments and in your worst, entirely beloved by God. I can't say that in a way that I can get you to rationally comprehend it which is why my prayer really is this morning that somehow the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you, that somehow this would be less like lecturing and more like prophecy, quite frankly, where there's this sense that something in you just leaps at that. God says over you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased, not by whom, not by your performance, not by your works, not by your merits, not how you've done on the report card, in whom. It is your very existence that causes God endless delight. Stand with me, if you will. The same spirit that split the heavens, that descended on Jesus like a dove, when the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, that spirit is here now. That Father is here now, and I believe wants to speak into the depths of you. Let's pray. God, With perhaps too many words, I have talked about belovedness, knowing that belovedness is not a doctrine. Belovedness is not a theology or a theory. It is is a reality. It is about identity. It is uh, something that has to be experienced. It's something that has to be known from the heart more than the head. It's something that has to be known in the body. It's something that has to be known in the soul. It has to be known in the depths of who we are. So, Father, I simply pray, believing that you are the same God that you were then, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, that you are here with us now, that your spirit is here now. I pray that in the same way you did then, that you would rend the heavens, that you would rip through all of our ego defenses, that you would split all the falsehood, and that you would speak once again into our identity. And I say to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I say to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Who God says about you, what God says about you, who he says that you are is the only thing that matters now. And I just invite you just in the depths, the depths of your soul just to receive the truth of that. Receive the truth of what God says about you. Receive your identity in Christ. Receive that spirit, that presence of perfect delight that sings and dances over your existence night and day. That's the God who's with you now. That's the God who hovers over you now. Receive your belovedness in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at, me, look at me for just a second. Before this, our servers come, I just want to say one more thing. Yesterday, uh, Pam Stukenberg texted me, Bernie and Pam uh, serve communion a lot, and she reminded me, uh, kind of on behalf of the servers, hey, could you remind people 
when they come to receive, to cup their hands to receive the bread. And I was thinking about that earlier this morning, how really that's not just a posture for communion. Like that is the what that is again the key to an entire life of God in Christ is learning to live like this, hands open, receiving the gift of your identity, receiving the gift of who God says that you are, not working for it, not striving for it, not attempting to prove everything, not doing, being, opening your hands, opening your heart. So I pray that as you come to the table today, that not only you would receive the elements, but that you would receive this gift of who God says that you are. Everything about this table embodies the whole mystery that knowing that we're broken. Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At our very worst, at our darkest, Jesus comes offering his very body and blood. So servers. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.